Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest anything, let alone radio station. Always really happy to be here. Um, I'm Ash Sarka at IU Caesar, if you're into that kind of thing. And I'm here with Navara Media co-founder and Danny Dyer's wordy cousin, Aaron Bastani at Aaron Bastani. As always, you can holler at us and tweet along with the show using the hashtag Navara FM. So... Today we're continuing with the theme that we've been musing on, um, trying to develop over the last couple of months, which I guess can be summed up as all my heroes are dead and my enemies are in power. Um, Not really. Thankfully, Beyonce is doing just fine. Um, Over the course of the next hour, we'll be asking what next for the right in UK and in Europe? And we've understandably spent a fair bit of time making connections between Brexit, Trump, Le Pen... And more, but it's important to do such work without flattening differences, right? Um, to not erase uh, cultural, historical, political and economic specificities, nor to lose sight of a global dimension, including the global south, um, while we consider this hard rightwards lurch in um, domestic and international politics. So... Um, a little bit of housekeeping, quick rundown of um, what's gone on in the last week. If I miss anything, I'm sure Aaron will really helpfully jump in. Um, so in France, right to start with France, um, Francois Fillon is uh, Les Republicans' pick to try and pull some momentum back from, like, uh, from Le Pen to bring some votes to the so-called centre-right. And I'd, I'd say he's running on a solidly neoconservative platform, right? So voted against gay marriage. He's personally against abortion. He declared that the enemy is Islamic totalitarianism. He's called for strict immigration controls. And in terms of his economic program, like it's a kind of hardline slash the state vision, right? So he wants to curb the unions. He wants to shrink the labor code from 3,000 pages to 150 which um, is a kind of like Trump-esque, like arbitrary um, numbers game, I think. Uh, he wants to end the 35-hour working week. He wants to cut back on the public sector, which accounts for 57% of French GDP. He wants to cut half a million civil service jobs. Um, so running against Le Pen, I think we should kind of con- contrast um, these economic visions and think about how a uh, candidate such as Filon, who is very proud to be compared to Margaret Thatcher um, in France, like in the UK, uh, Thatcherism is seen as a as an insult. Um, like we'll see how this plays um, in the UK, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot. Um, Brexit is cancelled now that Goldsmith lost a by-election, right? Isn't that isn't that what's happened? Uh, and also, <laughs> we've had the news that Boris Johnson has secretively told four European foreign ministers that uh, actually. Tories, the British government wants uh, to maintain freedom of movement and wants to maintain uh, some kind of presence within the single market. So, and in addition to that, uh, UKIP's position is also not to trigger Article 50, but to just start to wind back European law at Westminster. It's a, I mean, the mess hasn't even begun, which is amazing given we're six months into this I now. mean, there was, a, there was a tweet I saw which was like, if only there was some way to remain in the single market and keep freedom of movement, um, which, yeah, uh, had me laughing. And I think we do definitely need to talk about UKIP, um, especially that Carswell article, um, which popped up, which was kind of lying out the conflict um, over traditional Labour heartlands in the north. Um, and kind of setting out a vision for UKIP's um, ideological program, which positioned itself as a kind of um, continuation of uh, anti-establishment British grassroots movements like the Levellers and the Chartists, which, you know, I think is quite interesting, like at least rhetorically to make those gestures. Also, I want to talk about Paul Nuttall. Oh, we should definitely talk about Paul Nuttall. You know, it's easy to draw parallels between Trump, Nuttall, uh, Marine Le Pen. But Trump, especially with the Steve Bannon influence, has some policies which can be called economic nationalists, right? Protectionist, mm-hmm. mercantilist. We can we can define those terms as show progresses. Same with Marine Le Pen. Paul Nuttall is a free market Thatcherite. He's also got some very odd religious views by British standards. So, yeah, let's talk about how they're on the same kind of spectrum, but the way history works. And also, look, all of these people are trying to build coalitions, mm. right? And Carswell and Nuttall have really diverging views on a range of things. 
And let's also, I think, talk about Theresa May, who who can sometimes seem quite an elusive figure in UK politics. I think that's actually a very um, uh, conscious move on her part. Just like she tries to remove herself as a kind of um, target for what's going on, just sort of lets the mess accrue around her. And um, I think one of the policies that we really need to um, get into is this announcement that she will deprioritize children's school places if their parents are undocumented migrants. So this comes off the back of a real push to record the citizenship and nationality data of school children. Uh, Schools ABC, um, a campaign actually has run an incredibly effective uh, boycott and non-compliance campaign against it. Uh, has actually secured some wins. But I think like this um, longer term project, which is connected to but not reducible to Brexit of redrawing uh, precisely who is of the public, who is not of the public, um, we can see that in this particular policy. And um, yeah, I think we're also going to try and get into some useful historical analogues, moments, uh, methods for understanding what's going on. So, Aaron, should we start with Nuttall? Should we start with Nuttall? I think we should start with Nuttall. Yeah, go for it. Or shall I go for yeah. it? So he's 40 years old. He's the youngest leader of a mainstream party in Britain today. Are you writing his OK Cupid profile? Yeah, uh, no. I'm, uh, <laughs> hey, that's, that was a year ago. You're behind. Um, he won 62% of the vote. Uh, he beat his nearest rival, Suzanne Evans. Suzanne Evans looks like a Tory, right? Uh, Nuttall doesn't, although, like I say, that's his background. Is a th- you know, when I say he's a Tory, I mean, he's a Tory. He used to be in the Tory party. He tried to become a councillor in 2002. Um, he has some bizarre views on the NHS, wants it to be replaced by a free market model. Uh, he is anti-abortion personally, but he thinks it should go to a referendum. He thinks that the present at the moment in Britain since 1967, women can have an abortion at any time until 24 weeks. Nuttall would like to that reduced to 12 weeks. He also Jeez. wants it to go to a referendum. So 95-year-old men and 18-year-old boys can vote on women's reproductive rights. He actively defends um, discrimination against gay people in businesses. Uh, We can talk about that stuff later. This is all a matter of record. And yeah, he's a free market Thatcherite. And maybe this is not woke to say this, but he's a Bible basher. He's like, uh, very rare in British politics, you get somebody who's really trying to inject their personal religious views into politics. I mean, you get the rhetorical kind of uh, overtones like with Theresa May uh, last week. God will guide us through right. Brexit. Or Tony Alan Blair. wants nothing to do with this. Yeah, of course, man. Or Tony Alan Blair, you know, I prayed after I spoke to George W. about mm. WMD. But this is a bit different. The only other sort of, the only analogue I can think in recent history is Andy Burnham, who abstained on gay marriage because he's Catholic. So Nuttall's an odd guy. Um, he... So, yeah, most important thing for me is that he repeats a lot of the motifs, the tropes of the far right, things like cultural Marxism, political correctness, cultural Marxism in particular, he bangs on about all the time, the PC brigade, the PC lovies. And we, I mean, there was a really excellent long read in The Guardian about that this week, yeah. about the origins of the term political correctness and how it developed over time. And I think we should uh, talk about how these like right wing phantoms come to be and how they come to shape our politics. Interesting that, um, you know, you're talking about, like, what uh, distinguishes um, Paul Nuttall. Um, So Frank Field's comments on um, Paul Nuttall. So when he was saying that, like, what he's trying to do is sweep up those Labour votes votes even by transforming UKIP not into a party of UK independence, but English independence, right? So we've we've talked about this difference between, like, British and English um, models of identity. And um, what Field said is that it is about culture, identity, family and so on. and one cannot beat Nuttall by um, fighting him on those grounds. You, no do it, you, you do it on the NHS. Right. And can I, yeah. So, yeah, Frank Field, obviously, Frank Field is an agenda for Corbyn to fail. Frank Field, Dan Jarvis said that he was, the, now he'd won the UKIP Foxes in the Labour hen house. Frank Field called him a game changer. For me, Nuttall, and look, the hypothesis I've got may be completely wrong. He's the culmination of identity politics. And, you know, people can talk about left-wing SJWs and their safe spaces. That means social justice war, by the way, for people like Marley Yiannopoulos and his various fans. Um, but at a time where we've had wages go down 10.4% in nine years, declining public services, housing is difficult to access, I think working people, white, brown, black, in the north, wherever, but this is why we're talking about northern seats, want answers on jobs and pay. Marine Le Pen knows that. 
I think Donald Trump knew that. Maybe Paul Nuttall will come to know that. But I think where Frank Field gets it wrong is that, yeah, you'll win some votes in the whole Englishness thing. But you have to, you can't have right wing policies and win Labour voters. So there is a possibility for UKIP to do very well. But I don't think it's with Paul Nuttall, even though he is a working class northerner, because, see, of, because of the policies. See, I, I differ with... To an extent. I, I, I differ with you on this, um, simply because I think that um, the power of uh, xenoracist and nationalist storytelling is not simply in its ability to be a like fig leaf for economic inequalities, right? It's not just a form of of false consciousness but actually I think it um, speaks to something deeply embedded in um, not simply identity but class composition itself so what and I, th I think you're right this is this is identity politics and it, I think it's um, really interesting that uh, Labour Party um, grandees recently have been coming out against one particular form of identity politics, right? One which is based on empowering the marginalised and uh, committing itself to another, a particularly a historical and a pernicious vision of um, like, you know, a white working class, a homogeneously white working class. Um, I th and the reason why I'm saying like um, the, the power of um, xenoracism uh, is not merely just in its ability to obscure something is that I think it, there's a nihilistic bent in politics at the moment where I think it's not about voting for something like Brexit, voting for a figure like Trump and expecting things to get better, right? Trump has filled his cabinet, for instance, or like is holding meetings with, you know, plutocrats, right? And, and you know, it's that the establishment figures um, that he has claimed to deride. No one is, is particularly worried about that. Like his electorate, um, his, his base, don't see that as a betrayal. Um, and I think it's because actually there isn't a realistic expectation of things getting better. The whole, um, uh, what was it, 350 million in the, back in the NHS yeah. post-Brexit. Yeah. Um, the reason why it's not being made such a big deal out of, I think, um, is because no one really believed it in the first place. Um, I think the idea that, you know, racism and anti-immigrant sentiment is the kind of um, unfortunate uh, byproduct of um, a, a, a vote which, you know, had a genuine desire to see conditions improve, I think, I think isn't, few isn't things. correct. <clears throat> Excuse me. So a few things. On the Trump cabinet, mm -hmm. again, it's about a coalition, right? So it has got people, looks like Mitt Romney is going to be Secretary of State, even though he has no foreign policy experience. Um, but it's also got somebody like a Steve Bannon, mm -hmm. who is, I think, on the far right. He does seem to have what could be called fascist tendencies. Uh, he's an awful human being, but he wants a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure. Now, Paul Ryan, uh, Mitt Romney, the Republican establishment are more worried about that than anything else. So, like I say, that, that's a coalition. And I think, yes, of course, there are establishment elements within the Trump cabinet, but I think he probably is quite serious about some of the economic nationalist policies he outlined. And also, he has been talking about them for 25 years. You know, everything about China was 20 years ago, before the early 90s, was about Japan. And you can go on YouTube and watch this, and he goes, Japan is beating us so bad, they're taking all... You know. He was saying the exact same lines about Japan. We have an absolutely uncanny Trump impression, by the way. I mean, in 20 years' time, it would be Nigeria or something, right? He's Niger they're great negotiators, they're beating us. Like, he would say the same thing. So, so uh, yes, Trump, to an extent, you're right, but also it is a coalition. and We might be surprised, actually, about the, the amount of infrastructure spending they come good on. Secondly, David Runciman has a piece in the LRB. I don't agree with everything in it, but it's an interesting hypothesis. So he says that the Trump vote, Brexit, is in a sense a continuation of capitalist realism, a continuation of the expectation that nothing is going to change because it's a rebellion against the status quo. But fundamentally, those doing it don't think things are actually going to get any worse. They, they don't really think that net immigration will be reduced to the tens of thousands. By the way, if it was, and this is according to the OBR, Britain would enter its worst recession ever for years. So I don't think people actually think that. Ditto with Trump. I don't think people actually believed that uh, there would be wholesale. I mean, clearly, if Trump came good on what he was offering, there would literally be a complete transformation of the global economic and financial architecture. Um, it would be the biggest event since 19. You know, it could be the biggest event since 1945. Um, 
and I don't buy everything in Runciman's argument, but I think to an extent that is true, that a lot of people that voted for these things respectively didn't actually think they would change very much, and they saw it still as gestural, symbolic. And then thirdly, I, uh, I think we have to understand that there's always been a Eurosceptical base of opinion in Britain. So in the 1975 opinion, uh, opinion re referendum, mm -hmm. we joined in 1973, I think, along with Denmark and Ireland. We have a referendum post factum in 1975. I think it's like a two to one win for Remain. But that shows you there was a base of opinion there to leave the EU literally the moment we joined it. And the EU is undemocratic and it has various problems with it. And in addition to that, as we've now seen with the Hillary Clinton campaign, I want to talk more about that, mm. by the way, because it actually wasn't the disaster we've been saying it was. Unless you've got something to offer people, that's not good enough. Like, I mean, looking back, and I've had a lot of people say, Ellie said it last week, Ellie Mayo Hagen, mm -hmm. she knew that we were going to leave the EU because there was, there was no positive case for it. And actually, I'm, in a way, I'm surprised that many people voted Remain, in a way, right? Because they weren't voting for anything. They weren't even voting for the status quo. Many people who I spoke to who voted for Remain were like, yeah, the Eurozone is absolutely screwed. God knows what's going to happen in Hungary, which is, you know, EU member. So it's a complex picture. And to finish, I think, yeah, xeno-nationalism is very, very powerful. But I think fundamentally, UKIP would be much more dangerous if they combined it with an economic message, which I think the likes of Marine Le Pen is doing, and that's why she has smashed the Party Socialist and even historically the Communist Party in their strongholds. I don't think UKIP can do that unless they really go red on economics, and I don't think Nuttall's capable of doing that. I mean, I think like it's interesting that you mentioned Hungary, and I think that that's something that has been missing from our analysis. We've talked, we've mostly been framing um, a kind of hard rightist lurch as being something that's fundamentally uh, about... Um, removing uh, oneself from, from the EU, obviously, like the position of Hungary is somewhat complicated. Um, but we haven't situ we haven't talked about or Orban or Fidesz at all. Um, and think and so this Sunday we've got the like rerun of the Austrian election, right? And the places where Hoffer, is that his name? Hoffer, yeah. Hoffer um like does this as you were saying to me earlier, that's right on the border. Um, with Hungary, right? So it's all, all these anxieties around freedom of movement. Um, it's not, uh, it's simply not the case that the EU has been an effective bastion against the mobilisation of this uh, kind of aggressive um, ethno-nationalist identity politic in Hungary, in Austria, in France, and potentially Germany as well. Um, I think one of the questions that we ought to ask ourselves is seeing as the institutions of social democracy have proved themselves to be far less stable than we had, or certainly I had anticipated, um, what does a leftist project which encompasses electoralism as well as grassroots organising, disruption, resistance, what, what can that look like? Is there any way to um, make uh, taking over those kinds of institutions or exploiting those instabilities, a leftist emancipatory <clears throat> project? So I'll answer that, or I think I have an answer to it. Quickly on Hungary, on Austria. I think Hungary last year took something like 140,000 asylum applications. Austria took, I think, 50,000. Mm -hmm. Britain took 35,000. These countries have less than 10 million people. We have 65 million people. I think Sweden took over 90,000. Again, just under 10 million people. So on a material level, they are seeing massive levels of um, asylum applications. So it's not... In Britain, this is actually relatively unfounded, right? There is really no material explanation for it. There is a big change in terms of immigration and its complexion into places like Hungary um, in, in recent years. And what I think that has meant is that far-right parties, which existed before the crisis, had a base before the crisis, uh, the Nationalist Party, for instance, in Austria, the far-right party, existed, right? Jörg Haider had a shot of power. He's, he was their kind of totemic leader, very charismatic. He, he died. And then they've scaled in a context of not just an economic crisis, but also a migration crisis. So of context they are seeing massive numbers coming in and the reason why I, I think that the left is failing in these countries I'm not that familiar with Austrian 
and Hungarian politics. But I think it's the same reason why here we're sort of losing on the refugee argument is that too often it's a moral argument for keeping them. Mm. And that's insufficient, actually. A moral argument about being nice. If your life isn't particularly great, why should you be nice? And what that has to be replaced with is an economic argument for immigration. Not to say that it's good from a capitalist point of view, although it can be, especially with birth replacement rates in countries with low birth replacement rates. But just saying, look, it's no net cost. It's no net cost here. Okay. And the choice is, the choice is the far right's offering you borders, whiteness. But in addition to that, diminished living standards, uh, crap public services, less pay, jobs that aren't as good. The alternative is open borders. And this is not like some fantasy. This is genuinely the reality. Open borders, better living standards with a socialist, a radical socialist agenda, better living standards, better housing, better pay for everyone. And these people come here and they don't just use services, they also create jobs. Their kids will be world-class doctors. They'll be the, the guy who cleans the street. They'll be the woman that delivers your daughter's baby. So I don't think the economic case from, a, and I don't mean from a liberal perspective, I mean from a radical socialist perspective, is being made enough. And I think in Britain, when we talk to people who are considering voting UKIP <clears throat> on the doorstep, I think we need to say that. I think we need to say, look, this whole argument about borders, about whiteness, has some things attendant with it. Because I don't think you can just say, you're a racist, don't be a racist. You can say, look, you can, you can have those views, but if you want your kids to be unemployed for 15 years because we've reduced net immigration of tens of thousands, knock yourself out. Or maybe I'm being too realistic. And um, I, th I think that... Um you're projecting a logic of pragmatism and reasonableness, which doesn't necessarily engage with how these politics play out. Oh, it has been made emotionally, that argument. Right? I agree with you. Um, and I say this because these, these are the kinds of conversations that I have in, unfortunately, sometimes in my life I have to go outside the leftist bubble. I hate it. I always try and claw my way back in as, um, as soon as I can. And I was talking to someone who... Um, like this week, actually, who uh, is an actual Orban-loving, like, Fidesz bro. And, is he Hungarian? Uh, yeah. Right. Um, I, was, I was speaking to him in a, in a non-political... Well, every setting is an inherently politicised setting, but it's in a not explicitly uh, political setting. Um, and we were talking about uh, immigration... And I was like, well, look, like every study ever done has shown that, you know, and I was making these arguments, right? Um, every study of, every study ever done has shown that they lead to improved living standards for um, everyone, yada, yada, yada. And immediately he starts making these cultural arguments, right? So one's about um, Hungary is an inherently white and Christian nation. I was like, lol, no. Um, what Hungary is inherently white and Christian nation. These changes are happening too fast. People cannot adjust. Um, are you surprised that there's hostility? It's only natural. Um, if your house was taken over by people who didn't look like you, um, you know, you'd feel salty about it too. I wanted to be like, actually, I've got two white brothers, so that happened when I was 10. I was down with it, but um, he didn't appreciate that joke. So what I'm saying is that there's always slippage between economic and cultural arguments. and The economic arguments have to be made with emotional resonance. I don't doubt that. And so at the point that I'm trying to make um, isn't just about like how do you make this stick. Um, it's, it's more about like the nature of racism and how it plays out in politics is that like racism cannot be reduced to um, socioeconomic causes, right? Racist outcomes have racist I'll, origins, right? Politically. Can I clarify something? I'm not saying that people have those views because of economic grievances. They may just be racist and they'll be racist forever. What I'm saying in the British context, which I think is a bit different to Hungary, because Hungary, I think the countries of Eastern Europe and Central Europe are different here to the countries of Western Europe. Uh, and again, you can also have like a North-South thing as well, right? Scandinavia seems a lot worse on this stuff than Italy and Spain uh, and Greece, incidentally, given what they've been through in the last 10 years economically. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying all grievances are economic. I'm just saying that... The left has made an emotional defence of immigration. I think a moral defence of immigration about it being the right and just thing to do, that's true, but I think that's inadequate. I think you need to attack these cultural arguments. You do that through a mixture of economics, but also just I think the left has been reticent to offer something better. If you're offering moral arguments for immigration, globalisation that isn't working, in the face of that, I can see why those cultural arguments have been so nourished have grown so much in the last 10 years because it's an, an inadequate response and we see in in, in greece for instance but, but also like they haven't grown as much because of you know a left wing both 
a powerful left both in the street and in parliament. In the streets and in parliament. Golden Dawn got 9% in the last election. UKIP got 12%. True, but, you also, but you also have Golden Dawn attacks on refugee camps. Right? For a country that's taken, I think they had a million asylum applications last year, I think I think it's remarkable that a fascist party only gets 9% personally. But I'm saying that fascism... I mean, and I think this is the question that like we will be tussling with, like not just over the course of the rest of the show, but like... You know, the the rest of the Navarra projects until, of course, we have ended capitalism and racism along with it is um, there's there are strong relationships between street fascism and fascism in uh, democratic institutions. But you cannot collapse one into the other. A weak electoral showing does not mean a weak showing on the streets and, you know, vice versa. Um, but I don't think I don't think gold. Um, I don't think the golden dawn. That could change. The right could come back in, as in the, the centre-right party, the, the was it New Democracy, could come back in. And that could change. Uh, but at the moment, given, given the huge... I mean, the biggest suffering nations as a result of the Eurozone crisis have been Spain, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, relatively speaking. I mean, they, but you've seen mm. a bit, far bigger rise of the far right in Sweden, right, mm. with the Swedish Democrats, in Austria, which, yes, it's had big levels of migration, but has a superb standard of living. So there's no, I agree with you, there's no monocausal thing here. It's a, it's a really, really mixed picture. But I do think that, like I say, where the left has made an economic argument and it's been powerful, that seems to have overridden um, the far right. I mean, it literally hasn't even emerged in Spain, which, again, given the data on youth unemployment, nearly 50% wages, I mean, again, remarkable, really. I mean, so let's move to, I know, our listeners' favourite topic, right? Labour's electoral strategy. Um, and let's talk about uh, this quality of um, electability, like who is electable, who is unelectable, in relation to, um, I guess, uh, right-wing ethno-nationalism. Um, there is a much longer durée of um, an association of winning elections with a hard line on immigration that predates the financial crisis of um, 2008. Um, I mean, I always joke that, like, well, really, we should be st starting in 1492, but I understand that we're pushed for time. So let's start with, like, 2001, 2002, right? Um, where New Labour in power, you've got a model of electability that says, like, you must have a neoliberal economic programme, but also a xeno-racist social programme, right? So you've got... Um, the expansion of immigration detention, deportations, for instance. You've got um, a model of immigration detention, which is, you know, really in lots of ways pioneering. And it's it's striking how uh, rapidly that's become normalised. I think I think we should talk about um, that uh, specific kind of infrastructure. Um, and so, yeah, in um, between 2002 and 2004, the number of people successfully granted asylum applications halved, right? And in its place, you had the growth of temporary work permits, right? So the connection between um, restricting certain kinds of freedom of movement in order to grow new forms of precarious labour, that's something which <clears throat> comes long before what we now know is like the refugee crisis, right? Where we see these patterns um, cropping up again. In, in 1999, you've got famously the McPherson Report, which identifies uh, institutional racism, uses this very powerful phrase, institutional racism, for the first time. But by 2003, we've got David Blunkett saying that the slogan, institutional racism, misses the point because it uh, fails to grapple with um, the individual uh, racist sentiments and dispositions of people, right? So like, essentially just chucks away... Um, the meaningful ideological content of the term ideological racism, institutional racism even. So really you've got like a kind of four-year window in which it's kind of accepted by like a mainstream political class. Um, around this time, you've got the 2000 Race Relations Act from which immigration officers were exempt. So you've got immigration policies targeting at that time in particular, like Roma, Tamils, Afghans, Somalis. And the reason why I'm laying it out like this is because... Right now, you have the Labour right, Labour so-called moderates, and, and unfortunately, some voices within, you know, kind of Corbyn's camp saying that you need this kind of compromise being made in terms of um, a racist social programme in order to win votes again. 
What do you mean? I mean, there's a difference between saying let's reduce freedom of movement, like Clive Lewis has said, which I think I we talked about last week, totally disagree with. Mm. There's a difference between that and then saying, uh, defending, for instance, Yale's word. No, there is, but I'm, I'm drawing connections between, like, right. so what does that mean? Right. So, so what particular forms of state violence um, are encoded within that? Like, to, to say we will reduce, my, you know, immigration, we will, t- we will um, police borders better, like... This, like these are the kinds of institutions that spring up in, in the name of it. And the reason why I'm saying this is because it's a faulty strategy, right? It's a strategy that doesn't work. So at this time between, you know, I'm talking about 2001 to 2004, um, the BNP, which had fairly strong uh, electoral showings at that time, were quoted as saying that they could not believe their luck that new Labour had become obsessed with the asylum issue. And there was a quote which was, we have the luxury of banging on people's doors with the mainstream issue of the day. So my concern here is that, you know, to kind of return like to this question of like what next for the far right, is that we've not seen, you know, necessarily the hollowing out of the centre all of a sudden, like post-2008, there's actually just been a total um, abandoning of opposition in any meaningful sense in a way that's just played out to strengthen the hands of the most um, violent, reactionary xeno-racist politics that you know, exist in our society So a couple of things Um, So you've been talking about the substantive excuse me, sort of big cultural shifts, policy shifts under New Labour What's really interesting for me is that the first Labour term under Blair, 97-2001 does lots of weird things some good things, right? But two of them are um, defining for the future of the British state in many ways, which I find almost hilarious. The first, of course, there's the introduction of the Scottish Parliament, Holyrood. This provides ultimately a platform for the SNP. After that, it's only really a matter of time because you also have Scottish elections with proportional representation. They will obviously, Labour will not become the dominant party in Scotland. Eventually, SNP performance at Holyrood translates to Westminster results as we saw last year. So that wouldn't happen without Tony Blair creating Holyrood and giving it a means of electoral, um, an electoral system which was non-first-past-the-post, right, which would have kept up, propped up the two-party system. In addition to that, in 1999, we have the European elections. And for the first time, again, it's a Labour reform. I think they introduce a proportional representation system called STV. I think it's, I mean, I may be wrong. Is it STV? Or is it AMS? Maybe it's some additional. You're going to have to translate for me, babe. Anyway, these are proportional. My going black. These are proportional <laughs> representation systems, and the rest of Europe for European elections used this particular system. Britain, as is often the case, wants to be the exception. Blair just reformed it so it was in line. But previously, it was first past the post. So that again privileged Labour and the Tories in European elections by changing it to what they changed it to. All of a sudden, 1999, UKIP get I think two MEPs, and. That meant because you don't have the first-past-the-post system anymore, you had lower costs of entries to new parties, which we don't have for Westminster, right? So last year, UKIP got 3.8 million votes. Between the Greens and UKIP, 5 million votes. They get two seats, right, because of our electoral system. If we had PR, it obviously would have been a lot more for them. By 2004, now this is really fascinating. 2000, is it 2004? Yeah, 2004 European elections. The Tories get, I think, their worst electoral results in a British election since the 1830s. Labour get their worst electoral results since 1918 or 1917, right? So that's clearly a hollowing out of the centre already, and like you said, it's before the crisis. And that's contingent on a change in opportunity structure around elections, the European elections, which fortuitously intersects perfectly with new Labour going right on immigration and on um, asylum applications and all kinds of stuff. And then, fast forward again, 2009 European elections, which is a really, I think, historic moment in British politics. UKIP win, sorry, UKIP, I mean, they come second. They win in 2014. UKIP comes second. The Tories win, but given it should have a kind of midterm bias and they weren't in government at the time, they don't win that big. And UKIP do really well. And in addition to UKIP doing really well, the BMP get almost a million votes, right? So already you've got a million people voting for the BMP, I think. Let me get this up in a minute. I think maybe have, let me get this up. Maybe two million voting UKIP in 2009. Let me get this up, sorry. I don't want to misguide, uh, mis, misrepresent the facts. But already you have this huge body of opinion. Right, let's get this up. 2009. 
I'm you, so glad that you're taking citational pra- practices so seriously. No, Aaron. because sometimes we go, oh my God, Aaron, because I say so many stats and then so, so like one in 20 will be wrong and then we go, oh my God, he got it wrong. So I, you know, I can't afford to do that, can I? Taking so, his position as thought leader very seriously, guys. Here we go, here we go. 2009, I think, marks the beginning of Passockification. So Labour gets 16% of the vote in a national election, right? Now, for us, that's normal because we've had this for a few times now with European elections. And, but in the 1990s, that was like, what? That's impossible. So Labour get 16% of the vote. The BNP win two MEPs with a million votes. UKIP win 2.5 million votes. So in 2009, you have 3.5 million people basically willing to vote for the far right. And that becomes normalised through European elections and it translates increasingly to parliamentary outcomes. Then 2014 is seismic. It's an even worse result for the Tories than in 2004. It's the worst result to, till today uh, for the Tories since, since the 1830s. UKIP win nearly 4.4 million votes. And they're the first party beyond the Tories and Labour to win the popular vote in a national election since 1906. Okay. So that's historic. That's ha- that literally hasn't happened for a hundred years. And even then, the media around Westminster and some go, nothing's happening, nothing's changing, you know. Noth-. And if you look at that trajectory, 2004, Labour getting 16%, uh, the BNP winning two MEPs, all the way through to 2014, UKIP get 4.4 million votes, first party to win, other than the Tories and Labour, popular votes since 1906. You can say something is coming, right? Looking back, you can see it. Uh, and it's amazing that the Tories, given that context, even offered a referendum on the EU. And if they did, didn't think we're going to have to really work our socks off here. And I'm so, looking back at the data, I'm, I'm, I'm almost shocked at the lazy attitude of the elite and the establishment around this. So we are just over halfway through today's show. You are listening to Navara FM with me, Ash Sarka and Aaron Bastani. Uh, James Butler list today. It kind of feels like we're kids who've been left at a motorway service station. Right. Mum's driven off to like teach us a lesson about squabbling in the car. Um, I'm locked in the cubicle. You're buying us a chocolate. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's messy without James. Come back, <laughs> come back. Um, so we're discussing what next for the right, um, primarily in uh, the, in the UK and Europe. I think what I'd like to offer now um, is a question about like how do we situate this uh, within um, an international framework that includes the global south. So we're not just talking about um, the uh, election in America. We're not just talking about elections in Europe. I think you know we're talking about uh, first like. Um, trends in global capital and also trends in state violence. And the reason why I'm framing it in this way is because um, I was lucky enough to listen to an excellent lecture by uh, Robbie Shilliam, who really is just absolute top, top academic boy. Um, And what he was talking about was connecting uh, anti-colonial struggle to anti-fascism in Europe. Um, And it's something which is actually like woefully um, underdeveloped elsewhere um, in the academy and really should be a site of like further interrogation. So he was talking about um, the propaganda of the international brigades in Spain, where pictures of fascist violence in Spain would sit alongside accounts of atrocities in Ethiopia, right, under Italian occupation. And in um, Sylvia Pankhurst's uh, 1936 piece, The Fascist World War, this is in 1936, um, she writes about the war that began in Ethiopia is now in Spain and the evil that Mussolini did in taking troops to exterminate the Ethiopians is now being done in Europe, right? So the point being made here is that the practices of violence in Spain, right, in Europe, right, the disavowal of the victims of fascism was first a technique that was honed and developed in the colonies, right, in Ethiopia. I'm wary of, and I think sometimes this can happen uh, in decolonial circles of um, having a reading of history that's like really essentialized. So you're looking for the exact same pattern again today. Um, and I think we need to acknowledge that fascism takes a certain form in the 1930s, not just because of the existence of a communist threat, a very tangible communist threat, but also the existence of colonialism. Um, Both those things are immeasurably transformed now. But the question that I'm offering is how can we see the um, particular developments 
in state violence now that we're seeing in 2016, the kinds of policy proposals, for instance, how has this been playing out internationally running up to this? So a couple of things about Italy, because, mm-hmm. you know, I love Italy. I was actually considering doing a PhD on um, on Italian imperialism under the Liberals, mm-hmm. if I was going to do a history PhD. It's very fascinating. Mussolini used to call Libya Italy's fourth shore. He said it's not a foreign colony, it's Italy's fourth shore. So it has a... Cause it's sort of when he was trying to articulate what Italian imperialism meant, he was trying to contrive some imagining of a Roman Empire Mark II, right? Mm-hmm. Because that, of course, was the, the Italy doesn't exist until 1870. Fundamentally, it's a it's a confection of the 19th century. Prince Metternich, an Austrian diplomat, said it was a geographical expression. It's not a country; it's a geographical expression, because it had always historically been city states or mm-hmm. the Roman Empire or whatever. never been a you know hasn't been a nation state for very long. So Mussolini, in terms of trying to generate a sense of national togetherness, uh, a propositional sociality for Italians, invoked naturally the Roman Empire. And in doing so, he said, "Well, look, it's normal for us to have it, East Africa, and it's normal for us to have Libya, and you know." various possessions. And that is a bit different to uh, how Brits talked about having an empire. Oh, it's, it's, it's hugely different. Yeah, yeah. And it has more in common with the French um, colonial yeah. project. And of course, like this is um, the subject of Black Skins, White Masks, yeah. the French civilising mission, at least um, rhetorically, at least explicitly, was like, well, these territories are part of France. For Fanon, you know, in Black Skins, White Mask, the trauma is like, of course, I'm not French, I'm black, I'm a, I'm a colonised yeah. subject. So Mus- Mussolini used to call Libyans, I think, Muslim Italians, which is interesting. So he was very happy because he wanted a multiracial, it's an empire, right? It's not a, He doesn't want a nation state, he wants an empire. So it, it was quite inclusive in a weird way. And, you know, in terms of you allow the, the cleavage of Islam or religious multiplicity to be there, but not, you wouldn't call the Libyans, call them Muslim Italians. So that's interesting, but I think what's key to understand here is that Italy, Pankhurst is obviously right, amazing to have identified that trajectory when she did, mm. but Italy's first colonial wars really are under a liberal government, Giolitti in the 19, maybe in the 1910s. And this serves a couple of purposes. First, if people don't speak the same language, if people don't really think of themselves as Italians, conscription is great, right? It's really useful. <laughs> people go fight a war for a, a flag, which they've never heard before, uh, it's never seen before, a country they've never, some, many had never heard of before, many couldn't read and write, and all of a sudden they go back Italians. Uh, so that's very important. But that war, which was appalling, uh, saw many war crimes and so on, was done under a liberal government, very enlightened, comparatively speaking, at home. And if you look at Giolitti, if you look at what happens in Weimar, and how then it relates to the latter regimes, both Nazism and Germany, Mussolini and Italy, I think and this is just my hunch, that fascism 1.0, sorry, some people get aggrieved with these terms, don't they? (laughs) Fascism 1.0 is the outcome of a failed liberal nationalist project which intersects with the cosmopolitan project of globalisation, Belle Epoque capitalism, which falls apart with with the First World War, right? And in the place of that, and it takes a good 10, 15 years, in the place of that failed liberal nationalist project is a different kind of nationalist project. And I think we've seen a similar moment in terms of a failure of globalisation, akin to what happens in 1914, although it's happened a different way, with 2008. That's not to say the world changed in 2008, and like all crises, that crisis merely exacerbated pre-existing tendencies and brought them out uh, to their final conclusion in many ways. We've talked about the rise of racism and xenophobia, declining living standards before 2008. So there's a parallel there, a failed liberal cosmopolitan project that intersects with nations, and I think we're seeing something similar happening this time around. Only difference is, of course, in those countries like Italy, like Germany, like Spain, Europe exercised a very different relationship to the rest of the world. And so that time it was happening in a context of colonialism or the aftermath of colonialism fundamentally, the big gains of colonialism in the 19th century. This time it's a nostalgic project. And uh, and yeah, and also when we talk about fascism in Eastern Central Europe, of course, those guys didn't participate first time around. I mean, um, a point that uh, Shillian, um made in this uh, talk that um, I listened to was that uh, the occupation of... Ethiopia was also a pressure valve, right? Like he couldn't, like he couldn't demobilize the military in Italy for fear of revolution. So you know, it becomes this um, 
a, a way of like mitigating against um, communism, right? And I think that's a um, kind of connection between um, the work of anti-fascism, the work of communists, and the work of um, those resisting and dismantling colonialism that like um, hasn't hasn't really been made, at least to me, in that form before. Um, so getting rid of getting rid of surplus populations, you mean? Oh no, as in like um, you know the kind of pressure valve of like yeah. violence, like that kind of release. Interesting that you talked about um, imperial expansion as a liberal project. So this kind of takes us back to contemporary France, right? Like just before the show, you were saying that like it's striking that Hollande um, is really one of the most hawkish uh, leaders in the G7, right? Um, and I think like let's talk about you know Hollande in relation to um, Fillon and Le Pen. Fillon um, has taken foreign policies a little bit less fleshed out, at least at this point in time. Um, but thinking about uh, the French presence in Africa, I'm thinking in particular of like Mali, thinking of Libya, and how closely connected it is to uh, French economic interests, particularly in relation to um, energy production, right, resource extraction. So, for instance, the uranium mines in northern Niger and in Mali are run by, I think it's called um, Aviva? Is it Aviva? Yeah, Aviva, which is like 97% um, owned by the French state. So, you know, you have these huge... Um, when when we think about uh, how the French public sector functions, it is kind of inseparable from this essentially colonial infrastructure. Um, how do you think uh, that kind of neo-colonial political and military project might be transformed under Fillon or Le Pen? Well, this is the thing. I remember when Hollande wins the French presidential election in 2012. I mean, we were doing the show around it. And I've got some friends over in France, some political, some not. And the youth, the, the urban youth, as Paul Mays would say, <laughs> they were partying on the street. They were partying on the street. These are people I have... Sorry, I was about to... I was about to upset Ofcom then. They didn't have very good living standards. You had black kids, you had Arab kids, you had white kids. Very happy. I think big turnout. It's like 80%. So it wasn't that collapse. The centre vibe wasn't happening in France, right? Because they thought that... Look, I think France's living standards are going to decline as long as they stay in the Eurozone. I know some people disagree with me about this. This is why I think the rise of fascism, fundamentally, the triumph of the far right in France is inevitable unless they leave the Eurozone. That's my opinion. Um, but... Alain wins big, lots of people vote, 80%, and very quickly they go right in terms of a domestic economic agenda because they can't do Mitterrand. But Mitterrand couldn't do it in 81. These guys certainly can't do it in 2012, especially in the Eurozone. And then foreign policy stuff, really, it just is a complete mess. The, the countries you've talked about, incredibly active, and Libya. We did a video on Libya. People can talk about Cameron's legacy being a joke because of you know deficit elimination. Everybody talks about it for five years and then, oh, don't talk about the deficit. Mm. You know, like one day and nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, but, you know, also Libya. I mean, just a complete, probably the biggest, I would say it's a bigger foreign policy catastrophe than Iraq and Afghanistan. Just because we barely... And also thinking about what the stable, you know, I'm using scare quotes, which I'm afraid you can't see on the radio, guys. Um, what the stabilisation of Libya will look like. It will be the massacre of black Africans. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it, it, we didn't even do much in Libya, but we did just enough to make the situation absolutely dreadful for the next, like, 50 years. Whereas in Iraq and in Afghanistan, at least, like, British soldiers, you know, died. I'm not saying it's obviously it's a terrible thing, but they died. We spent lots of money. You said, oh, God, that was a big mess. But it was like we made a huge mess for no particular reason, with no domestic consent, with no strategy. And it was kind of like just off the cuff. And it was driven by... Uh, it was driven by the French. I think it's Sarkozy who drives it in Libya. But France has been incredibly, incredibly aggressive around foreign policy in relation to immigration, particularly in relation to Africa. It's been driving a lot of the problems in Africa for the last six years. And Hollande, if anything, is, like I say, is much more hawkish. It was more hawkish than like, Obama and stuff. Mm. And this is France. Like, for me as a kid, my association with France was Chirac being opposed to the Iraq war. And you don't think of France as being more hawkish than the US and the UK, but actually in Africa it's anything... But. I mean, this is. I mean, this is less of a um, point of analysis and more of a kind of uh, something which has had an an intense um, political resonance for me. Is thinking about the massacre of Algerians in Paris in sixty one, October sixty one, I think it was, um, and the graffiti on a bridge across the Seine saying, "Like here we drown Algerians." 
um, in, obviously incredibly affecting, but it just has an, a particular um, macabre resonance when you think about the drownings of those who've taken the Libyan route to cross the Mediterranean, right? Which is the majority of drownings in the Mediterranean. So you think about, you know, the kind of project of Fortress Europe, of course, which France is a huge part. Um, you may as well, like, kind of have a massive sign on, like, the borders of Europe saying, like, here we drown North Africans or those who have come via um, North Africa. Um, and, and I think, like, kind of looping back to this... Um, imaginative tussle that we've been working on which is like how do you tell these stories in a way that has emotional um, power in a way that has like a very solid economic underpinning in a way that also doesn't chuck morality out of the window I think an ability to draw on these images these phrases these um, counter hegemonic but not not blithely idealistic stories right these kind of stories from below like is is a way of doing that, a way of drawing on the cultural memory of marginalised people of colour in Europe in a way that is also transnational and connects to um, the movement of people, uh, the exploitation done in the name of the movement of capital uh, globally, if that makes sense. I mean, just to go wind back to that whole economic argument, I think that, and I'm not denigrating moral arguments, I think that you can't make arguments from charity, you have to make them from solidarity. Now, what does that mean? An argument from Solidarity says, I was talking to a bunch of SOAS students around the Justice for Cleaners campaign at SOAS, primarily around uh, women who are cleaners at SOAS who are from South America, primarily. Um, and I said, look, you can't look at these people as worthy of charity. Yes, they're marginalised. Yes, they're on low pay. Yes, they've, they've not got unions, etc., etc. But you have to understand it's a relationship of Solidarity. Now, what does that mean? It means you're batting for them today because tomorrow they'll bat for you. So when you need better housing, you're in a union, you go on strike, they'll come out for you. They'll show you support. They'll help your strike fund. They'll go on a picket bloke with you. They won't cross the picket. And that's why you need to help them today, because they'll help you tomorrow. And I think the same relationship has to be cultivated fundamentally between Br British-born citizens and undocumented migrants, right? And I think you need to say, look, they're going to come here and you're going to look after them today because tomorrow they're going to look after you. They'll be the people that are part of a very successful, very prosperous society and they will look after you and you are your brother and sister's keeper. And I think that that solidarity argument is much more compelling than charity. That's, and it's also more true. I mean, also, let's, let's think about this, right? Let's think about... Um you know, so we're talking about what next for for the right. I think something that's really striking about uh, Theresa May's uh, hard right project is the incorporation of racial others into a British nativist project. So what do I mean by this? I mean, in her conference speech, she spends significant time going over stop and search, uh, the fact that black women are three times more likely to be unemployed than their white counterparts. And I'm reading this speech and I'm like... Lord God Almighty, these are the exact same stats which were featured in the first Black Lives Matter UK shutdown video. It would not surprise me if some, you know, preppy, pinstripe-wearing young Tory party researcher um, kind probably. of... you know, Nick, Nick uh, Timothy's a smart guy. He probably did watch that video, actually. Um, you know, it lifted one for one. Why is this happening? Does this mean that um, suddenly anti-blackness disappears, that um, there are... Uh, there's a new um, racial um, abject in town. Well, no, anti-blackness does not disappear. What it does mean, though, is that there is certainly a concerted effort to incorporate black British people, right, as in people who have not migrated to come here in, in this generation into a project of British nativism, right? And I think this represents um, a development and a honing of racism as a, as a tool for organising politics, structuring society, and as a tool for social control. Um not one iota in Theresa May's either like policing policy or um, economic policy will do anything to combat the forms of institutional racism that were identified, right? Like, like let's be real, this is lip service. But as a rhetorical gesture, it's really significant. And to, th and to think about um, the incorporation of, in particular, British um, blackness into this nativist project, you know that um, a Forgotten History uh, documentary series on the BBC at the moment about um, black British presence. Episode one, um, they're talking about the building of Hadrian's Wall and the involvement of African soldiers in um, the building of Hadrian's Wall. And 
I was watching it with a friend. We were just like sort of sitting there, like eating popcorn, and um, not the not the historian who's uh, presenting the documentary, whose, whose name just um, eludes me right now. But someone being interviewed was like, "What this shows is that there were black people in Britain involved in protecting our borders from the start." And not to be zhuzhek about this, but I was like, this is pure ideology. Like this, I mean, you know, because one Hadrian's Wall is more of a customscape, but, you know, whatever. Um, but again, it is this part of concerted effort to incorporate. Um, I mean, that's just bizarre. I mean, I mean that is just weird. But, but, the, but the selection of that quote is really telling, and it does tell us something about where we are, about the playing of racialized communities against one another, I mean, I, the, the along the axes probably... of, like, you know, mm. who... And, and again, thinking sound about like fast, to be honest. I mean, it, it was maybe I, the BBC I, should have a look at their history. Um, I mean, <laughs> but it, like the, selecting this quote isn't isn't an accident, and it does speak to where we are, and it does speak to the centrality of um, documented, undocumented status in drawing the lines of who is of the public. Yeah, they were here legally as as an occupying army who you know destroyed the you know native Britano Celtic tribes. They were here legally. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Are you, are you like? Tipping one out for Boudicca, man. Like you're just like Boudicca was uh, was was a big deal, man. But anyway, no, look, we got <laughs> like we got five minutes left, so I won't talk about Boudicca. <laughs> but yeah, so so this is my point in terms of this is something which I feel is really distinct from the kind of ethno nationalist project um, as we see it in America, in France, in Austria, in Hungary. Um, again, these are rhetorical gestures; they don't manifest in economic policy. But um, I think in terms of like for me, I like to talk about what stories are people telling, what stories are sticking. Like this is something which um, we cannot uh, we cannot miss. Like, it requires unpicking. So I've got like four minutes left. Aaron, what you got for me? I got a five point plan how to deal with the far right. Oh my god, five points, four minutes. But okay. I'll do it. I can do it in like I can do it in a minute. So I'll, my first point is that le- Labour or parliamentary expressions of the left need to defend freedom of movement and make a case based on solidarity, not charity. This involves drowning deprived areas with white, brown and black people in loads of money. I mean, loads of money, hundreds of billions of pounds. Number two, we need to create the conditions beyond parliamentary actors for that to work. Requires a new media for different politics. And I think unions and everybody really have to get serious about funding progressive left media in 2017. I've taken out a subscription for the Young Turks, despite James really hating them, uh, because I think it's a very important voice right now in the US. We have to understand with media, by the way, because there's a crisis of print media, that it will also only get worse. Bright, the likes of Breitbart will only get more powerful unless mm. we create a countervailing narrative and ecology. Number three, we don't try and persuade those who disagree with us. We try and get those who already agree to get actively involved. That's true for party politics, anti-fascist organising and new media. Karl Rove says in 2004, he says, where well, the Democrats get it wrong, the Labour right does the same thing. They try and get these middling voters to vote for them. That doesn't work. Doesn't, it doesn't work like that. We get people who agree with our values, who agree with basically the Republican Party on a range of things. That could just be one thing, couldn't it? And we bring them into our coalition. We get people who agree with us to be active, to be mobilised. I think we need to work in the same way. Number four, we must understand that liberalism will always prefer fascism to socialism. Mm. The photo of Mitt Romney having dinner with Donald Trump uh, and kissing his ass. I think Ofcom will just about allow that, to be Secretary of State, uh, really belies that. The BBC and Whitehall would sooner have Nigel Farage in a British cabinet than John McDonnell, Okay. That's end of story. Number five, we build an expansive anti-fascist movement which accepts, this is really important, a diversity of tactics while seeking to build a cross-class multiracial coalition. So it needs to cross classes, it needs to have white, brown and black people, but everybody in there from TOFs to, you know, teenage kids need to understand that there's diversity of tactics there. Yeah, you can have your flaky demos and your petitions, but if people want to do direct action, if people want to uh, literally impede the reproduction of racist policing, of state violence, go knock yourselves out, go for it. And where better to start than going to Yarl's Wood on the Movement for Justice demonstration tomorrow? There are coaches, there are trains. It's honestly one of the most... um, emotionally powerful affecting demonstrations um i've i've been on on in my entire life um you you cannot help but be moved when you see the women inside um like literally fighting off guards in order to hold a demonstration of their own holding signs um i think we take inspiration from their bravery and yeah i think as a model for activism we should look to the most marginalized the most vulnerable for leadership 
um, which actually they provide in droves if only we let them. Um, that's about all we have time for, right? Yeah, one more thing about inhibiting the reproduction of state violence. Mm -hmm. You know, people who harass people of colour, undocumented migrants, immigration officers, they change them every year because they need a constant rebranding. They cannot arrest UK citizens. They do not have a power of arrest over you. So please, if you see this, get involved, intervene, ask them questions. You are upholding the law by seeing what they're doing, asking them not to harass regular people. So yeah. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.